I'm sure most, if not all of us, <clears throat> know what it's like to get a late start on something. Maybe back in college days, or some of you might be students now, late start registering for classes, or late start getting a project at work going, which means your deadline is closer and closer. Maybe a late start dating, getting married, starting a family. Maybe a late start more relationally, a late start actually considering others. You know, I know people like that. It's just like, wow, there are other people I need to think about in my life. And maybe a late start getting physically fit, planning for retirement, valuing what's, what's really important in life. Um, all these things are late starts. And probably, you know, one of the biggies is a late start following Jesus. And some of you maybe are in that category. I was talking to someone a week ago who accepted Christ later in life. And my story is I, I don't ever remember not knowing Jesus. I went to church and Sunday school from little bitty boy, and I just don't remember a time when I didn't trust Jesus and, and have him as my savior. And we were talking about the difference between a late start and in that area as well. But late starts aren't really the problem in life, are they? Because there are, there are stories and motivational quotes about late starts and overcome obstacles to, to get where you need to go and accomplish your goals and books written on today's the first day of the rest of your life. Just start now and, and you, can, you can make your goals a reality. But the tragic stories in life are not the late starts, they're the no starts. The tragic stories are people who, for whatever reason, have a really, really good opportunity in front of them, <clears throat> see it, can even touch it, but don't take advantage of it who don't follow through, who don't take those opportunities that come. They go through life and they never fill in the blank, whatever that might be. And it gets more and more consequential as the stakes get higher, doesn't it? I mean, for some small things, it might be, well, you can't take that class, you have to sign up for another one. But, you know, you miss, you miss a deadline on a payment because you're late, there are consequences. Or we talk about spiritual life. What about when you're late starting? What does that do to your life? The danger is greatest for those who hear and follow, who fail to hear and follow the message of life in Christ, isn't it? The parable we're gonna look at today is presented by Jesus in response to the religious leaders in the first century Israel in Jerusalem in particular in this, in this account who really, really refused to accept Jesus' divine authority, who Jesus was speaking on behalf of. They just would not go there. It wasn't a late start, it was a no start. This parable, by the way, before we dive into it, is shared by Jesus in the week right before his crucifixion. This is really important to understand because the parable we're gonna look at is very short, very brief today. <clears throat> so Jesus had entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd was really excited. They were, they were anxious to get rid of this Roman tyranny they were under. And Jesus was bringing this message of a new kingdom. And they, oh, this is awesome. We need this new kingdom. So all of that going on, and then, so that was on what we would call Palm Sunday. Then the next day, Jesus goes into the temple. And if you know the story, he goes in the temple and he sees the perversion that had happened to the uh, worship of God, the Old Testament sacrificial system, how instead of worshiping God in that sacrificial system, the, the leaders of the day had made it sort of a business and they had corrupted it. And so now they robbed it. And so Jesus went into the temple and he was throwing tables over. And you remember his, his words, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. 
Now, Jesus was already unpopular with the religious leaders before this week. He didn't help himself with them at all from Palm Sunday moving on into this week. So the people that were out to get Jesus, the people that wanted him gone, that were threatened by his message, were even more entrenched in their efforts to discredit him. And the stage is set now for this cosmic showdown. And it is this parable and the, the two that follow it in this chapter, which we're not gonna look at today, it's really important that we realize this is like right before the crucifixion. So the, the showdown, the cosmic showdown is taking place. It was a spiritual battle of epic proportions in the first century, the religious leaders who were opposing Jesus. But it's also an epic battle in every culture, in every era. It's an epic battle in every one of our hearts. It's an epic battle every day for us, will we accept the power and authority of God to be God, or will we reserve the right in some or all areas to say, no, I will determine what's best there. I will determine my path. I will actually determine what God can and can't do in my life or in this world. That's, the, that's kind of the epic battle that that's, uh, the stage has said here. Are we gonna stubbornly hold to our man-made systems or embrace the work of God. Now, the parable that we're going to look at, as I've said, is very short. It's only three verses. To understand it, we have to look at what's before and after it, which we should do in every Bible study that we have. But if you want to go to Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32 is the bigger passage we're going to be looking at today. If you're using the Uversion Bible app, uh, as you, if you go to events, First Free Church, you'll see the scripture and the notes there as well. <clears throat> as I read this, the, the opening words are when Jesus returned to the temple. Remember what happened yesterday when Jesus was at the temple, right? He went in and wasn't happy with what was going on, so the tables were thrown over, and he said, you've made my house, the house of prayer, a den of thieves. So I can imagine, you know, Jesus coming in the temple, and people are like, wow, wonder what's going to happen today. What he did yesterday was pretty amazing to see. So that was kind of the setting for this. Now let's dive into the passage. I'm going to start with verse 23 of Matthew 21. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, they will ask us why we didn't believe John. But if they say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believe John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think about this? And that's where the parable is introduced in verse 28. A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will go. But he didn't go. That's the parable. So those two short verses. And then Jesus asked the leaders, which of these two obeyed the father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained this meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came to, and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. While tax collectors and prostitutes did, <clears throat> and even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Now, this is the first of three parables 
that are going to go right in a row in this section uh, of, of Matthew. And they're all hitting on the same theme. Mark in his gospel puts this on Tuesday of Passion Week. So Palm Sunday, the cleansing of the temple, and then there's this controversy, this debate among religious leaders and Jesus. And it was common in that era, in that time for, especially if you're in Jerusalem for a big religious festival as they were, uh, to just stop teachers in the street and ask them a question. It was kind of a form of entertainment. There wasn't a lot to do. So if you saw a rabbi, you would ask a question and then that would start a dialogue and then people would gather around to listen to what this teacher had to say about a certain topic or how he would answer a question. So that's kind of what, what Jesus was doing here. The chief priests, just so we're, we're all clear on who they were, they were the highest level of aristocracy, you might say, in the Jewish religious system. They were uh, something of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish tribunal. So the highest court of Jewish law would be these chief priests. And the, the elders were probably the non-priestly members of the Sanhedrin. So we're talking about some pretty heavy hitters in Jewish religious thought who are challenging Jesus on the basis of his authority to do these things. And it says these things. So what were these things? We, we can assume it was who gave you the right to come into the temple yesterday and tear things up? Who gave you the right to come into Jerusalem and have all this celebration, but probably even beyond that, who gave you the right to be doing this teaching about a kingdom that's coming? Uh, who, who gave you the right? And they ask about authority. Authority was really, really a big deal for Judaism in the first century. Uh, original thought was not highly valued. We'll say that right up, right up front. Original thought had no place. If you wanted your teaching to mean something or to be, have any merit, you need to be footnoting another teacher. So what they valued is I'm teaching in the school of this rabbi or this is the rabbi that I was a student of. That's, that's where authority was. So for Jesus to come and not have that and even more to come and sort of infer and sometimes actually outright say that the authority that he has is actually from God? It's like, whoa, that just blew their mind. They, they don't have a category for that because authority isn't just independent. It has to be from another person, another leader. Jesus responds in verses 24 and 25. And it seems like a kind of a trick. Oh, I'll tell you the answer to your question if you answer my question. But that again was, it was actually a, common form of debate and discussion among first century rabbis. Uh, it's just counter question kind of a comment. Well, I'll ask you this question, then you ask me a question, and that's sort of how debate went in some settings. Jesus said by, ask this question, I tell, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Did John's authority to baptize, and by baptize, that's, that kind of means the whole ministry of John. It's not just when he was baptizing, but the message that John gave, the message that, that John gave, which was about calling people to get ready for the kingdom of God. God was doing something really, really magnificent and powerful and global here with Jesus and John's message was about cultivating the ground in people's hearts to be able to receive the gospel that was coming of the kingdom of God. And it was not about external religious observation. It was about heart change and heart transformation. That's what John was calling people to. 
In fact, let's look uh, at Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, just to, be a, to refresh our minds about the message of John the baptizer. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. I will baptize you, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat and his winnowing fork, with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat in his barn and burning the chaff with never ending fire. That was the message of John the baptizer. And so Jesus is asking a question. So what do you guys think of that? Was that from God? Was that just a human man-made kind of teaching? The masses embraced the message of John the baptizer. Crowds came to him. The religious leaders were very, very threatened by John. His teaching pointed to Jesus. So it's appropriate here for Jesus to say, basically, before I ask you about my authority or talk to you about my authority, if John came talking about me, where do you think his authority was? Because if you, if you deny he had any authority from God, then you really don't even have a leg to stand on to ask me about mine because he was talking about me. That's kind of a, the, the strategy Jesus was taking, I think. So the leaders went into a private deliberation before responding to Jesus' question, and they in no way needed time to think about this for their answer. They knew immediately what their answer was. They knew their answer was, no, this isn't from God. John's baptism and John's ministry was not from God. It threatened their very being as religious leaders. But they were very concerned with controlling the outcome of this. It was a political calculation for them. So they went away, they came back because they thought, boy, if we say it was from God, then we're caught because if it was the authority of God, then we already say we believe authority. And if it's God's authority, how can we deny that? So then we're gonna have to believe and give Jesus some credit here. And that's not where we're gonna go. But if we say it was from man, all the people are gonna respond poorly because they really believe even this long after John's death that he was a prophet. So they gave the safe answer, we're not sure. And Jesus' condition had not been met. He wouldn't provide them with the answer to their query because they couldn't answer his. Instead, he tells them a story. The story is not unrelated to their question. In fact, after the just short parable, Jesus is gonna circle back to John's ministry. And it's important because we have, to, we have to look back at that. But let's look more closely at the parable itself, starting with verse 28. What do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed his father? Now, there's just not a lot here. This isn't a parable. We're gonna like pull out all the details because there's not a lot of details. It's pretty simple, isn't it? This story, uh, family-owned business, I assume. Father was in charge of tending to the vineyard, either through hired help or through family members. And so he comes to the older son and he said, hey, I need you to go do some work today. And he asked the son to go into the field, the vineyard and work. The older son blatantly refused, which in that culture would have been the most offensive thing a son could do to a father. It kind of reminds us of a parable we've already looked at of the prodigal who, who's totally disregards his dad, says, I want the inheritance and goes and squanders it. That was just so offensive to the first century Jewish mind. Uh, but 
like the prodigal, the father here doesn't demand obedience. He just says patience, loving care for this son who says no. Later, the son regrets, maybe repents of what he's, what he's looking at. And so he changes his mind and he goes into the vineyard to work. And then the, the father apparently, and, and we don't even know, again, I'm putting more in than what's in the parable itself, but it seems like maybe that son said no and then went to work and dad didn't even know. So he didn't like go back to dad and say, I'm really sorry I treated you that way. Now I'm gonna go work. He just went and worked. The other son, same request. And this son says, yes, even yes, sir. I mean, he even gives this title of respect in his verbal response. Yes, sir, I'm honoring you. I will go work. And then he doesn't. And in both cases, the action is directly opposite of the verbal response that the son gives to the father. The question that Jesus asked the religious leaders in verse 31 is really precise and really important and critical. He does not ask which one of the, which one of the sons made the father happy or which one of the sons pleased the father. He didn't ask that. He didn't ask which one uh, honored the father. He specifically said, which one did the will of the father? Which one did the will of the father? This is an important theme in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And then in Matthew 12, 50, anyone who does the will of my Father is my brother and sister and mother. Doing the will of my Father, what is that about? It's anyone who actually is doing what God ultimately wants, which gets to a heart of a problem that the leaders had is they were, they were under teaching and under the impression that what God wants is some kind of outward piety. That's not what God calls us to. That's not what John the Baptist was talking about. That's not what the gospel of Jesus is about. So Jesus corners them with this question. Obviously, it's the son who the father instructed, who said no and changed his mind, who was the one who obeyed, who, who did the will of the father. Uh, they gave this answer, and then Jesus called them to account. Matthew 21, 31. Jesus explained the meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. Tax collectors and prostitutes. We'll talk about that for a minute. Probably the most extreme outcasts Jesus could use. These categories would have been far outside of anybody in first century Jewish religious life to think that God would care about. The religious leaders found their piety, their holiness in their outward facade of, of piety and of rule following and of helping other people to follow rules and correcting them when they don't follow rules. They were the picture of honor, purity, unlike the corrupt tax collectors and the prostitutes. Tax collectors and prostitutes or tax collectors and sinners are used in, in the gospels in various places. Kind of proverbial for, for those wicked people who fall outside of the people of God. And if we're really, really honest about it and really look at it, probably, and it's kind of convicting for us because I think we can do this too, not only wicked people who fall outside of the people of God, but people who God probably isn't even really that interested in. God really, really isn't interested in them because they're so wicked, vile, thoughtless. And we need to be careful about that in our religiosity, don't we? 
We need to be careful about putting people or groups or individuals in categories. We watch the news on, in the evening and we see crimes and we see what people are treating each other and we see where our culture's going. And it's, it's possible in our own minds and heart to think, wow, they're outside of the people. God wouldn't even, we wouldn't think it consciously, but our hearts go there. It's like, maybe they maybe even are outside of who God would want if they're flaunting it that bad, if they're thumbing their nose at God, maybe God's just not gonna want them. That's kind of the impact of what Jesus is saying here. The phrase, before you do, which, you know, when, G- when Jesus said, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get in the kingdom before you do, that could either mean ahead of you, you know, they're gonna be further in the line, or it could be in place of you. I mean, The text isn't real clear, but either of those is possible here. But God is referring to his preference for a transformed heart over a religious mind. God wants a transformed heart far more than he wants a religious mind. And that's what the problem was for these leaders. There's a phoniness, a cheap religious facade that the Jewish leaders had to maintain. And that was like the son's initial, yes, I'll go but then fails to actually go and work in the vineyard, fails to work that out. While notorious sinners, those whose lives do not hide their brokenness, pride, addiction, selflessness, selfishness, rebellion, they may have an initial no. In fact, they may have many no's. No, I'm not gonna follow God. No, I don't like God. No, God's not real. No, there's no creator. They may have all kinds of no's But in that no, there's a dialogue with the God of creation and the Holy Spirit uses that to convict and change a heart. And they actually then do surrender. As we sang earlier today, they surrender to God and they end up walking a path of transformation and usefulness for God in his kingdom, even though their answer was no verbally to him. You see, God is always about deep spiritual transformation. Sinners are welcomed into the kingdom. Hypocrites hypocrites choose to stay out of the kingdom because they say God is something that he's not. But I think there's something even deeper than that in in this story. And that is that these religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin leaders who are challenging Jesus here, were missing and misunderstanding how God's plan, how this cosmic plan of redemption is unfolding in time right before them. The religious leaders fell in a trap of what I call stale orthodoxy, fixed on the confidence that they possess complete and final knowledge of God and his ways. It was in large part their certainty about God that caused them to miss the presence of God. It was in large part their certainty about God that caused them to miss the presence of God. And that's a danger for us as well, isn't it? That we can become so convinced of who God is and convinced of how he does what he does and convinced of what is happening and what he's doing that we can actually miss his presence doing the work that he's choosing to do. Remember that this is about authority, isn't it? This whole conversation Does God have authority or do I have authority in my understanding and view of God? That's the challenge here. This is a trap we have to be aware of in our own church and in our own lives. 
I remember many years ago when I was looking at seminaries to attend, I, I visited a seminary. I didn't end up going there, but I sat in on some classes at this seminary, and I was in one of the classes, and a professor was talking to a room full of future pastors and church leaders, and he said this, the sad truth is that many of you will graduate from this seminary and be pastors for 30 or more years, and your theology will never change. Now, I'm convinced, I know that school is a solid Bible-believing school, so I don't, I don't think he was meaning you know, you're gonna abandon the Trinity or you're going to deny the sufficiency of Christ. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, how sad that you're going to, at whatever age you start your pastoral ministry, you're gonna think, I've got it all figured out now. I've got it. I know what the Bible says about all these things. And so for the next 30 years, you're not gonna have any new insight. You're not gonna have any new fresh understanding about what the scriptures say or about how God is doing his work. How tragic. He was warning about a stale orthodoxy. A level, my, my point here, and I have a couple examples I wanna share, but my point is just that we need, even as Christians who stand on the truth of scripture, to have a good dose of humility. A humility to say, okay, I'm, I believe this and this position on this issue, but it's because of the information I have and my understanding of scripture, and there very, very well may be a better way or a different way to look at this. A couple examples. Mark Deaver, who leads Nine Marks Church, talks about one of the main reasons in his church's history, way back in the late 19th century, he said one of the chief reasons someone in his church would undergo church discipline, that is church discipline, you know, you, elders knocking on your door saying you're in sin, you better stop it, was habitually being absent from church. Can you imagine what would happen if you get a knock on your door one night and it's two or three of our elders saying, hey, we need to talk. You've not been at church the last couple of weeks. And it's not to tell you they're missing you, it's to say, I need to talk to you about your sinful heart. I need to talk to you about how far from God you are. I mean, we don't do that. Or another, another example, in my, in my college, I went to an evangelical Bible college, strong biblically-based Bible college in the 80s. And just a little more than a decade before I was there, definitely two decades before, this Bible teaching college had a stance that prohibited interracial dating and marriage. And if you ask them why, they said, because that's what the Bible teaches. And they had a biblical position that prohibited interracial dating and interracial marriage. Now they changed that. Did the Bible change? Did we get a new verse somewhere? No, we didn't get a new verse somewhere, did we? What happened? We faced some of the ways that we've been misreading verses or misapplying verses. We've, we've faced some biases in our culture or even in our own lives, some prejudices that have, that have led to us having a, a perspective on an issue and claiming it's biblical when more information helps us to say, you know, I probably was wrong on that. One more example. In our own denomination, in the Evangelical Free Church of America, not long ago, anyone who had been divorced or was married to someone who was divorced for any reason at all 
was barred from having any kind of ministry license or ordination in the Evangelical Free Church of America. No reason. I mean, even if, if, if the person who was applying for a ministry license was married to someone who had been divorced in their past and their spouse left them, didn't matter, barred from serving. And, and the process to get an exemption was pretty brutal. It was almost like an interrogation. Uh, and, and, the, and, and the reason was because the Bible says we have this sanctity of marriage and this is what the rules are on divorce. And so there were biblical reasons for that. Uh, it, but it was very judgmental. And I'm, I'm pleased to say, and I've been in a little bit of the conversations of this at the denominational and district level, that in the last couple of years, we've reevaluated that and say, man, that's really harsh. I don't know if that's what the Bible really wants us to do. Now, we still have conversations and we still do some kind of fact-finding to understand what that is because there are certain cases where that person probably isn't or shouldn't be ordained or have a ministry license. But but now we've shifted to where there's a lot more grace and a lot more mercy. And I think that shift has helped, helps us to be a better denomination. But the Bible didn't change. What changed? We started looking at it differently. Tom Gibbs, who's the incoming president of Covenant Seminary, wrote in an article and touched on this. He said, our rational viewpoints, particularly on political and religious viewpoints, are subject to deeply held biases that oftentimes are unacknowledged. Sometimes we just don't see it and something helps us to see it. Now, I wanna be clear. My point is not all of the doctrinal statement of the evangelical free church is up for grabs. That's not what I'm saying. My, my point is not every belief is up for grabs. We don't know anything. My point is we have these beliefs that are clear and that we hold to the central tenets of the Christian faith. And we have a lot of others that we may hold to, but we need to leave room for God to actually help us to better understand them. And it's not wrong if we, if we shift because we have a better understanding of God or the Holy Spirit helps us to see that better. Last, one, more, one more comment on this and then we'll move on. Biblical theology is always forged in the culture of the day. Biblical theology is always forged in the culture of the day. Now, someone after the first service thought I said, biblical theology is formed by the culture of the day. No, 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 don't, I, that is not, that is wrong. Biblical theology is not formed by the culture, but it's forged in the culture. God sent his son to a very real group of people who lived in a specific time, in a specific place, who had specific political issues, who had specific uh, cultural issues, who had specific issues that they were dealing with. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letters, wrote to churches who were dealing with real specific cultural issues. Theology is forged in culture, and it's still being forged in culture. So, as we're interacting with what's going on in our culture, our challenge is to hold to the truth of God's word, but also to say, okay, where are we learning and growing? And that is not a, a clear cut picture sometimes. Sometimes there's more gray than it is black and white. But I think that's just one, one reason that, these, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day were having a hard time with Jesus. I think his next words will help us. So Jesus goes on to say, 
I'll talk a little bit more about John's ministry. And I think John's ministry is key to this. In Matthew chapter 21, let's get back into the text here. Uh, verse 32, for John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. So John's message called people to repentance, called people to respond to the coming kingdom through inner transformation. It says in Matthew 3, 2, John the baptizer said, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. For people who can't or won't acknowledge their sinfulness, this is a, a offensive message. That was the case in the first century Jewish religious leaders and it's the case today. The way of righteousness, the right way of living was not outward conformity and it's not today. It's a heart that's transformed by God through, through repentance, through baptism, through identification with the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Jesus is pointing out that it's more likely for someone who once said no to God but eventually surrenders his life to serving the Lord, to experience God's love than it is for someone who gives lip service to God but fails to live that out through a redeemed life. It's one reason why I like one of our ministries here at First Free. Every Friday night, there's a ministry called Celebrate Recovery that meets and Celebrate Recovery. Some of you might know of it. It's commonly thought of as being a, a really good group for people that struggle with alcoholism and drug, drug abuse, which it is, uh, but it's really for more than that. It's Anything that's tripping you up in life, you know, perfectionism or codependency or, or um, overeating or greed or anger, grief, loss, bitterness, all those things. In fact, it says hurts, hangups, and habits that get in the way of us having relationships with God and one another. Um, and every week, this group meet, we meet as a group. And what I love about Celebrate Recovery which ought to be true every time we come together on Sunday morning, ought to be true every time we open our Bibles for quiet time, is you walk into that room on Celebrate Recovery, and everyone's there because they need it. Everyone's there because they need to be there. Everyone's there because they don't have it all together. They don't have all the answers. In fact, life's spiraling out of control. How wonderful that we're children of God as life spiraling out of control. Uh, I love that about Celebrate Recovery. And if you need a place like that, go to our website, efree.org slash groups, and you can find a link there or reach out to me at the office here and we can get you connected. But that's what doing the will of God is all about. See, doing the will of God is, is saying, I don't have it together, I need Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit fills us and helps us to live in service to him. That's the scandal of the gospel. And the religious leaders of the day missed it. They totally missed it. It was a no start for them. In fact, they scoffed at the tax collectors and sinners. They were upset with Jesus for hanging out with them because he was corrupting this God who they were worshiping. One more example, and then, then we'll wrap up. Another reason or way to look at this perspective is maybe to think of the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, two, two important words. Orthodoxy is believing the right things. Orthopraxy is a term for living rightly. Believe the right things and live the right things. And too often in churches, we're either heavy on one extreme or another. Either it's about living right, living right, living right, and we, we 
compromise on belief or it's believing right, believing right, believing right, and we compromise on living. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were big on orthodoxy and they missed the orthopraxy part. The apostle Paul was a master at tying these two together. Titus chapter three, verse eight. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Did you get that? Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Orthodoxy, believe in God. There's, there's a true biblical belief that leads to orthopraxy, the practice of living out that sound doctrine. You may be late getting started following Jesus. You may be late getting started serving him. You may be late getting started surrendering to him. Maybe you've been as one of these religious leaders in the first century and you've felt you've known about God so much that maybe keeps you from experiencing him. Today, I wanna challenge you to hear the voice of God, whether you're here in the room with us or watching online. I wanna challenge you to hear the voice of God calling you to go into his vineyard and work for him. And that's not about cleaning up on the outside. That's not about external conduct. It's not about looking right. It's about a heart that's transformed by the power of the gospel. It's about surrendering your relationships, your money, your skills, your time, your family to him. God doesn't, he's not concerned with how many times you've said no. And maybe you've said no a lot. And maybe even yet this morning, you've said no to some things. God's not concerned with what you've said to him. He's concerned with what you're living and how you're living that out. He wants to transform your fears into faith. He wants to transform your brokenness into his power. It's about right living and that right living flows from internal transformation. I love how one commentator put it and I wanna close with this. So focus on this with me and then I'll pray. Righteousness or right living as a dynamic quality expresses itself in the newness of life in the spirit, which is freely given to those who have been justified. It's not something you create from the outside in. It's something that God does from the inside out as we surrender to him. Dynamic quality expressed by the newness of life in the spirit. Let's pray and ask him to do that in our lives and in our church. Heavenly Father, this is a, a real heavy concept because we can so often be like the religious leaders of the first century. We can, we can feel that we know about you so much. We can, we can believe and through study and through reading your word and committing to knowing it, we can, we can sometimes fall into the trap of stale orthodoxy that we, we know so much about you that we miss you. We don't wanna do that. So while we stand firmly on the truth of your word, show yourself to us. Show yourself to us in our own hearts and minds and our families and our church so that we can be the presence and the witness for you in this community, in this world that will help people who desperately need to know you. People who are saying no all around us to know that inner transformation, to be workers for you. In Christ's name we pray.